Right then, Marin Hansberger. Mm, yes, Greg um, Foot. <laughs> it's weird, isn't it, calling people by their full names? I don't know about you, but I do it all the time. As a Brit, it's weird just calling people by like their name. That's really funny. Like in conversation. <laughs> like, I'm never going to refer to you or look at you, really. <laughs> and because we use um, surnames quite a lot, obviously, for this. Um, actually, I've just realised that today's story is about Hamilton. <gasps> if we're Hamilton? doing surnames. Oh my God, wait, I haven't seen the no, musical not the yet. Me- yeah, I could, <laughs> I could saw your response. And you're oh, like, is that not who we're talking about? Musical? That's not who we're talking about. No, who we're are not. we talking I about? I mean, arguably an even better Hamilton. No, Whoa. this story is about Margaret Hamilton, oh. someone who pushed the boundaries of what's possible. A software pioneer whose foresight and skills, along with computer code, that's actually woven into copper ropes. What? Yeah, she genuinely saved the mission to the moon. Uh, all right, so no small feat. <laughs> uh, before I tell you about Margaret, though, and and I let you know how she did get Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin safely Whoa! down to the lunar surface. Welcome back to Surprisingly Brilliant. This is a science history podcast from Seeker that tells the stories of surprising and brilliant discoveries, ideas, or indeed people like Margaret Hamilton. I'm Marin Hunsberger. And I'm Greg Foote, and we swap roles each episode. So last time Marin told me the story. This time it's my turn to tell her the story. I'm so excited. I don't know anything about it. Doesn't know the details. You just get to sit back and chuck things in my general direction. And relax. So, Margaret Hamilton. She was born in Indiana in 1936 and she grew up in a small town in Michigan. She was one of three kids. Um, She had two younger brothers. Her father taught English at college and, and was into sort of philosophy and poetry as well. And her mother was a high school teacher and she taught English and home economics. So growing up, Margaret says she really liked math, though not exclusively. But the thing about math was it also came easily to her. Though the part she enjoyed was more to do with the logic and abstractions. That's Zoe Corbin speaking, a freelance journalist who writes about science and technology. And Zoe had the opportunity to interview Margaret Hamilton for a piece that she wrote for The Guardian in the UK. And she shared what that was like. Normally, uh, normally for one of these pieces, I interview someone for about an hour. And with Margaret, it was more like two hours. It was it was just really amazing to, to hear it straight from Margaret about about what it had been like to work on the project, you know, what it was like to be a woman in in those times, to understand uh there's this sort of famous incident where when they're trying to land the eagle, it all goes terribly wrong. That's the bit we're going to get to very, very soon. Yikes. Right now, though, Margaret is about to head to university to study mathematics at the University of Michigan. But after only one semester, she actually moves institution to a smaller college where her mum went to, uh, a Quaker school, Earlham College in Richmond, Indiana. Mm. And, you know, she says coming from a very small town in the Midwest, it suited her much better, the environment. And Particularly, she had this very favourite teacher at Erlen, who was the head of the math department. So I read something brilliant that Margaret said about this teacher, actually. This teacher's name is Florence Long. Um, Hang on, let me find it. I'm going to get you to read it. So this is what Margaret says about Florence? Yes. Okay, so this is what Margaret is saying about her favourite professor. She was the head of the math department, but in some classes, I was the only woman in class. But there was a woman teaching us. Everybody looked up to her. I mean, she was just a very warm and brilliant human being. It wasn't what she said, it's just who she was. She would invite us to her house from time to time for cucumber sandwiches with mayonnaise. But when she'd get up and lecture, I thought, oh my God, I want to do what she's doing. It really did have an influence. Oh man, that's so cool. Cool, right? Yes, it just shows you that like power of teachers. 
of lecturers of just like you know people that absolutely kind of I have those people in life. my life yeah me too I remember my uh, my teacher at the end of my primary school so when I was probably I guess about 12 11 or 12 super influential my science teachers in middle school and high school were actually both women and they are one of the main reasons why I started even thinking I wanted to do bio in college in the first place so thanks to Florence Margaret wants to pursue a career in mathematics with the hope of becoming a mathematics professor mm. So she meets a guy she rather likes while she's at Earlham, James Cox Hamilton. Recognise the surname. A little bit. <laughs> they marry the summer after she graduates, 1958. And while he finishes his undergrad, she teaches at a local high school. Um, and they both got assistantships to attend graduate school and to attend graduate school at Brandeis University. Her in abstract math and him in chemistry. But in the meantime, they'd had a daughter and they realised that one of them would have to work to support the family. So while they were deciding what on earth they were going to do about this, her husband happened to visit Harvard Law School and decided that he wanted to be a lawyer instead and to study there. And so then that's when she found a job nearby at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT. Whoa, so we've got this conundrum because they have a, a small baby, they both find good jobs. What happens? Well, so she's given birth to their daughter, Lauren, as the name of her daughter. That Cute. was in November 1959. And to support the family while James is studying law, she looks for this job nearby. And she wants to find something that will still satisfy her love of maths. And that job was in the laboratory of uh, quite a well-known professor called Edward Lorenz. This is uh, Professor Edward Lorenz. Now, for any Relativity fans listening, that is not Lorenz of the Lorenz Contraction. All right. This is Lorentz, who was called the father of chaos theory. Don't get it twisted. <laughs> because uh, around this time, he it gets really interested in complex dynamic systems like the atmosphere and, and what would happen if little things change, small changes, and he thinks they could trigger vast, often unsuspected results. And in fact, in 1972, he publishes a paper that's called Predictability. Does the flap of a butterfly's wings in Brazil set up a tornado in Texas? Wait, this is where we get that phrase? That's so crazy. Yeah, I had the no butterfly idea. Yeah. effect he coins that huh. yeah, but that's um, that's in the future right now we're in the 1960s and margaret is working with lorenz um who of course is another passionate mentor in her life and she gets to work with a computer for the first time whoa that would be huge as a mathematician mm -hmm. and it was here she learned how to write software you know programmers were learning this stuff on the job and it was this professor's sort of love of software and experimenting with software that um was just contagious for Margaret. So computers, we should say at this time, are a relatively new tool to all kinds of fields, including science and research, like what's happening at MIT. And so it would just really change the game for what you were able to do in terms of mathematics and like in this case, predictive calculations. Yeah, so they are dealing on, you know, weather predictions. So yes, you can suddenly process way more data, way more calculations in the and, amount of time it would have taken you originally. And so they're inputting, they're saying like, okay, so if the clouds are like this and the temperature is like this and the ocean is like this, then run this basically an early simulation and what happens at the end. That's what they're mm -hmm. doing with yes. this, right? And she gets hooked on that whole model. As you'll see, simulation is a big part of her future life, as is kind of what 
she does to change this concept of computing oh. and software. 1961, in the summer, she moves on to another project. Okay, it's a MIT Lincoln Lab. It's called the Semi-Automatic Ground Environment, SAGE. And she gets to pursue this love of writing software. Initially, she's working on another computer system to predict weather systems, but then she gets to like track their movements using simulators. And this is essentially a radar system, right? And she's at a conference in 2011. She talks about SAGE. Here we go. Let you let you read what she says. Okay, so this is 2011, but she's reflecting on her time in the 60s. Yes. With Sage. What they used to do when you came into this organization as a beginner was to assign you this program, which nobody was able to figure out or get to run. It was tricky programming, and the person who wrote it took delight in the fact that all of his comments were in Greek and Latin. Sounds like a great guy. <laughs> I was assigned this program and I actually got it to work. It even printed out its answers in Latin and Greek. I was the first one to get it to work. That's hilarious. So she basically has to go through like this hazing process at this new project where everybody's like, oh, yeah, give the new kid the hard thing that they'll never figure out. And then she figures it out. (laughs) Which, again, is something you're going to see again. Oh, what a gal. And what you see is kind of a theme in Margaret's life is that she likes to spot what causes errors and find ways to avoid them. Interesting. Mm. So Sage actually gets repurposed for the military to help anti-aircraft air defence from uh, potential Soviet attacks during the Cold War. And then something big happens. There was this advert in the paper and it was her husband that she told me that, that saw this advert. And again, it was another job at MIT and it was in the MIT Instrumentation Lab and they were looking for people to develop software for sending man to the moon. Can you imagine seeing that advert in the paper? And also if you're Margaret, like I feel like we've seen this trend so far where she's taking on these challenges and she's she's taking big leaps and she's starting with all of this really new cutting edge stuff. And so I can just picture her finding out about that and being like, yeah. I'm going to do that. And she actually said to Zoe, she said that she was, um, quote, attracted by the sheer idea and the fact that it had never been done before. I mean, who wouldn't if you want to be involved in sending How exciting. people to the moon? I know. Something else that hadn't been done before, though, however, was that lab hiring a woman. Really? She's the first one? Well, she applies for the job and well, I'll tell you what happens next after the ads. Welcome back to Surprisingly Brilliant. Today's story is Margaret Hamilton's. Uh, It's 1964. She's applied for a job to develop software, quote, for sending man to the moon. And she hears back that she has got it. So Margaret joins the MIT Instrumentation Laboratory, who had actually received the NASA contract to build the in-flight software for the Apollo missions. The software on the spacecraft? So cool! Oh my god! And she's not only the first woman they hire but also the first programmer too. Holy crap. So not only, I mean, obviously she's not being hired because she's a woman. She gets, she has to overcome a lot to get hired in she's the first place. She's done some amazing work so exactly, far Exactly, but also Laurent. she's just the best programmer they could have hired. So she starts work on the software for the unmanned Apollo missions first because essentially as a, as a newbie, she's given what they thought would be the least important software. So like nobody's going to die if that doesn't work out. <laughs> in fact, she's programming what would happen only if the mission aborted. Interesting. And she said in a presentation, she said, because it was, quote, never going to happen, I called it, I, I still remember the name of the program, she says it was called Forget It. Oh, I love what people end up naming their software programs. But then the mission actually did abort. And she says, uh, quote, I became the expert of the entire mission because control in the software had indeed gone to 
forget it. What do you know? I was called in and I was the one who had all the answers to all of the questions in forget it. No way. That's such a good story. <laughs> that actually led her superior, Dan Lickley, uh, the man who had actually become her second husband oh. and who she is still with today, to gain a lot of trust in her. So it's 1965. Uh, she's been promoted to develop the software now for the manned spacecraft. Although we should actually say crewed uh, spacecraft. Yeah, even though they we? were all men at the time, weren't they? Until Sally Ride. Yeah, yeah, in I the think, 80s, I 1983, think. 1983. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, Margaret, she's soon leading this team developing software for the Apollo programs, including Apollo 11, which is hoping to be the first to get someone on the moon. Dun, dun, dun. And here's something surprising that Zoe said. So, I mean, during the early days of Apollo, software wasn't taken seriously at all as as she explained it or certainly not as seriously as the other engineering disciplines yeah the original document that outlines the engineering requirements for the apollo mission does not include the word software wait what but isn't that what's in charge of like the astronauts being able to get to the moon yeah but as margaret told zoe (laughs) who i'm now telling you um, (laughs) they just didn't take software seriously enough to actually put it in the document. It wasn't like as important as like the way the hatch opens or the way the levers work or like the physical engineering part. Yeah, I guess. Weird. I actually read in another interview that Margaret gave, she said, uh, quote, when I first got into it, nobody knew what it was that we were doing. <laughs> it was like the Wild West. There was no course in it. They didn't teach it. Of course. Well, and also this is the time where you are writing your own software. Not only like there's not a, really a standardized language, like you're developing it as you go too. Like this is brand new stuff that you're shaping as you have to work on it. So Margaret gives what her and the team are doing a name. She coined it software engineering. Um, And it was just to basically say, look, hey, people, we are engineering too. And what she told me was that for for a long time, it was a kind of ongoing joke. You know, these people are software engineers, ha ha. Then, Then one day in a meeting, one of the sort of most respected hardware people who she really sort of looked up to, you know, took it upon himself to explain to everyone that he agreed with Margaret and what she was doing and what her team were doing was software engineering. It was engineering. It was this process of, of building software that should be considered engineering. And so for Margaret, that was a really memorable moment um, that she, you know, you, I could hear it in her voice. Like she was, she was, she was so proud of the fact, I think, that... Um, she managed to sort of take this field that that that, that didn't have this standing and 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 give it such a such a standing. Oh, I love that. That makes me so happy. I'm so glad she got the recognition she deserved. And this is funny because we're currently sitting in a studio in San Francisco, which is, you know, like tech central. And sometimes I'll, I'll meet people and I'll ask them what they do and they'll say they're an engineer. And I'm like, oh, what do you build? Because I'm, I'm coming mm, from a scientific lab. Bias. So yeah, I'm yeah. thinking engineering, physical engineering. And they're like, no, 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 no. I'm a, I'm a software engineer. <laughs> and you go, oh, let me tell you about Margaret Hamilton. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I asked Zoe what it was like to actually work on these Apollo projects. Like, so the Apollo project as a whole was extremely big. I mean, there's, you know, over 400,000 people were involved in it. But as she explains it, she didn't actually pay very much attention to how big it was. You know, she just delved in. And, and most of the people in the lab were, were young. They were in their 20s and their early 30s. And the atmosphere, she explained, was serious, but also informal. 
400,000 yeah, people huge. are working on the Apollo programs. Uh, it makes sense. Yeah. Her team um, is about 100 software engineers. And I kind of asked what this team's job was. And essentially, it's to create the software that will go on the hardware, which mm. is two onboard computers, one on the command module, Columbia, and one on the lunar module, Eagle. Now, for anyone who doesn't know, computer hardware is the physical device, right? right the so machine. Like your screen, your keyboard, all of the circuitry, that kind of stuff. The software is the code that then goes on it. And I wanted to find out what that 1960s hardware and software actually looked like, yeah. right? And how it was actually coded. How do you go about doing that? We spoke to Rod Pyle, a space historian, journalist, and author. The hardware, the computers first. So the flight computers on the Apollo spacecraft were the first of their kind. Nobody had ever flown this kind of a complex computer before in a spacecraft. They hadn't even really flown in airplanes. And at this point, computers filled entire rooms. They were large. They were very power hungry. They were hot. So it's really something that was new and unprecedented in flight in general and certainly specific to space flight. I was literally just about to ask that because at this point in time, computers are gigantic mm-hmm. and they're, they're not very efficient. They take a lot of power. So how the heck do you put one on a spacecraft? Yeah, like you said, they've never flown in planes. Could you imagine getting one on a plane? That's insane. And now they're going to put on a spacecraft. I actually have read, this is reminding me, that the space race and early space flight is actually what we have to thank for the miniaturization of so many of our electronics because you needed to figure out how to get these devices on a spacecraft. So that's kind of why you and I have laptops now. (laughs) Hey, I guess we have. We've got all of these engineers to kind of thank for this tech. And then I wanted to know, how small did they make them? Like, how did they shrink them down? What did they look like? So by the time they were done with the Apollo guidance computer, they had a machine that weighed about 70 pounds. It had been shrunk down to the size of a briefcase. It had 36K of memory in in rough terms. That was not an exact comparison to today's computers because uh, programming is done differently now. But that gives you a general idea of their capacity. It was very small. They've been hugely shrunk down, right? But they still weigh 70 pounds. That's a heavy briefcase. That's over 30 kilograms for the uh, fellow Brits. Oh, yeah. Listening. <laughs> so this is something that was about as powerful as a basic four-function calculator. Could have maybe run your microwave today. That's about it. And uh, just in terms of comparison, your smartphone today has more computing power than not just NASA did in the 1960s. But it has more computing power than the entire planet did in 1969 when Apollo 11 landed on the moon. That is an incredible fact. I love talking about computer history because we've come so far so fast. Can we just reemphasize here? The computer that the astronauts used mm-hmm. to perform the calculations to mm-hmm. land on the moon, mm-hmm. like physically used in, in the module that they landed on the surface of another. Across both the modules, both the command and the lunar. Was about as powerful as the computer in your microwave. Yeah. <laughs> But that fact that your smartphone has more computing power than the entire planet had when Apollo 11 landed on the moon. Jeez. Amazing. Right. So that is the hardware, right? What about the software? So this is where Margaret comes in. The software's job is to fly the spacecraft to the moon and back. Without any like manual input from an astronaut. Like it's supposed to do it by itself? Well, have a listen to this. Rod takes us through the whole suite of things that the software needs to do. But once an Apollo spacecraft reached Earth orbit, the Apollo guidance computer took over from there. So it was responsible for firing the engine, for determining how long the engine birds would be, and for controlling the orientation and trajectory of the spacecraft. It flew the spacecraft all the way out to the moon. It had to find the moon where it was going to be in a couple of days, not where it was at that moment, and then enter an orbit about 60 miles above the lunar surface. Then from that point, 
the command module and lunar module separated and two astronauts would ride the lunar module down to the moon, down to the lunar surface, while the third astronaut would stay in the command module. So there was another identical computer on the lunar module with a slightly different set of programming that would navigate the lunar module out of lunar orbit all the way down to the surface, control the engine during that time, including the landing, although the astronauts always took over manually, but they didn't have to in theory, and navigate them to the precise spot they wanted on the lunar surface as close as it could, given 1960s technology. Then, of course, that software then needs to help them get back after their moonwalks. They need to find the command module, right? And then needs to get them all the way home. Oh, my God. I mean, like, can we just think about the calculations involved here? Like, you've got the physics of the spacecraft itself. It's got to detach two parts from each other. It has to know where the moon's going to be by yes, the time the it gets there. Yep. I mean, the the math, the pure math involved hurts my brain. And so how on Earth, well, not how on Earth, how on the moon, how on the uh, moon? do you program software to handle all that in the 1960s? Rod, as you can tell, is amazing. He knows this. Over to him. In the 1960s, as I said, computers were large and bulky and slow and not very easy to operate. And when you wanted to program a computer, you used something that looked like a typewriter to create punch cards. And the punch cards were about three inches by five inches across. And they had little holes punched in them. And once you finish creating those, you'd take a big stack of them over to the main computer. They then get fed into that computer and the, and the computer essentially reads the cards, reads the position of the holes and creates a computer program. Is the paper why we call it software? Because paper's softer than the metal and stuff that's used to make computers? I have no idea. <laughs> Me we should either. call it paperware. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> Margaret and her team, their job is to build a simulation of the Apollo guidance computer program and uh, program it like this using punch cards. And then overnight, that would actually be programmed on a giant, it was called a Honeywell mainframe computer with the hope that the simulation the next day would run well. But in space, you don't want to have a whole stack of cards, right, that you need to load into the computer. Right, you can't take those on the command modules. So what do you do? Hmm, Rod? Instead, they had a very different approach, which was they did permanent programming by creating a mesh of wire. And these are large electronic cards that have thousands and thousands of little tiny hair thin wires about the width of a human hair where they intersected there would be a little ferrite core. It looked like a little metal bead. And it was a little magnetic core. And depending on how those were distributed throughout this wire mesh, that would give you either a one or a zero. So that was how you did early binary programming. So once this thing was built, that was the program. There was no changing it. So this is a, a total revolution in the way that we talk to computers and ask them to do what we need them to do. And essentially, it's turning software into hardware. And this metal mesh genius invention is really hardy. So it's going to, you know, take the rough and tumble of, of the launch. Wow. So what happens if Margaret's simulation works, then that gets turned into this permanent programming, right? It gets passed to the LOLs. Not, not, the, not the laugh out louds. Not the laugh out louds. <laughs> or even the love you lots, as my parents still think LOL stands for. No, the LOLs were the little old ladies. Wait, NASA has a little old ladies working with them? They're like expert seamstresses who, who as Rod was saying, use copper wire <gasps> and magnet rings to actually sew in those instructions. No way. So this is like a weaving project. Yeah, and to expand what he says, because I kind of wanted to look into this, any code, no matter what language it's written in, boils down to being made of bits of binary data. It's like zeros and ones. On or off. 
Yeah? Zeros are ones. Now, if the wire is sewn through a magnetic ring, that's a one. If the wire goes around the ring, that's a zero. So that's how they're literally permanently sewing in or stitching the code. Like physically manifesting it to the computer. And the system apparently stored more than 12,000 words in those copper ropes, as they were known, uh, and had capacity for 1,024 words in its temporary memory. Can you imagine how long that must have taken to stitch all that and how accurate you need to be? And how many little old ladies were working on it. (laughs) (laughs) And it's actually because of this way of programming that Margaret was affectionately called a rope mother. Whoa. Which I think is on the top list of mothers I'd like to be just behind mother of dragons. (laughs) Or maybe on top, I don't know. (laughs) In an interview, Margaret said, um, quote, I was always imagining headlines in the newspapers and that they would point back to how it happened and it would point back to me. (laughs) As in, if something went wrong, she saw and she was worried that it would come back to her. I mean, what a pressure. She realizes how much of this is resting on her shoulders. Crazy. There's another whole part of this story that we haven't really touched on. The fact that Margaret is a working mum. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, Zoe talked about this. So she had a babysitter. She hired a babysitter so that she could do the job. Um, But there's this lovely example that she gives of when... Um, being a mum and working collide and which had a which actually had an influence um, on the project and and what that was um, and she, you know is this lovely example and I think to me this example that I'll, I'll, I'll tell you it shows sort of more than anything the importance of having a diversity of people designing our technology as Zoe says Margaret's daughter, Lauren, is instrumental in developing the code to help keep astronauts safe. No way! But before I tell you the story of what happened when she plays astronaut in the simulator one night, let's take a quick break. We're back. We're telling Margaret Hamilton's story. Although actually this bit is about her daughter, Lauren. So... Margaret would often bring Lauren into the office on evenings and weekends and Lauren would sleep on the floor. That's what you got to do if you're a working mum. She'd be overlooking the Charles River whilst mum's programming away. Uh, But one night, actually, I'm I'm not going to tell you this story. Here's Zoe and Rod talking about this. You know, there were these simulation machines where they would be, you know, imagining what it was like to, to go to the moon. And Lauren, her daughter, was there playing astronaut in the machine, you know, pushing buttons. And, and Lauren started this simulation um, going to the moon. And then she pressed more buttons and the simulation stopped. And, and what, what Margaret realized was the reason it had abruptly stopped is that Lauren had actually activated um, a pre-flight program. But when the thing was in flight mode. Completely by serendipity, accidentally entered code 001 so while the spacecraft was thinking it was in mid-transit to the moon, it was suddenly told, no, you're on the launch pad. So Margaret later saw that this error had occurred and shooed her daughter out of there and looked at it and figured out what was going on and thought, you know, we really need to not let this happen during a flight. So she called NASA management and said, there's a problem here. You know, you can inadvertently reset the spacecraft to think it's on the ground when you're halfway to the moon. And NASA responded, as they often did in those days, don't worry about it. Astronauts are professionals. This would never happen during flight. I'm sensing that maybe this is some foreshadowing. Yeah. <laughs> so during the next mission, uh, it's Christmas. Like nine- the actual mission to the moon, astronauts are in a spacecraft. Five days into Apollo 8, 
which is a mission to take astronauts to the moon for the first ever manned orbit. What does Jim Lovell do? Does he accidentally tell the spacecraft it's on the launch pad? <laughs> yeah, he fires off that pre-flight program Listen, mid-mission. stuff happens. Being an astronaut is hard, <laughs> apparently. So during the flight of Apollo 8, during the transit between the Earth and the Moon, uh, during that flight, Jim Lovell accidentally entered the wrong commands of the computer and basically wiped out their navigation data. So at that point, the spacecraft had no idea where it was in space. So even though they were midway between the Earth and the moon, this was the pre-launch code 001, which said, hey, spacecraft, you're on the launch pad. You're getting ready to go. So because of that, the Apollo spacecraft on that flight, Apollo 8, kept orienting itself vertically along the axis of flight. And no matter what they did, it would keep returning to that position until they figured out what to do. I'm so anxious right now. <laughs> You're sat here with both your arms crossed over your head, just in like, and your face is like... This makes me so nervous. Can you imagine? I mean, okay, so I'm a kind of person who has made many a mathematical mistake in my life and felt... We all have. Felt crappy about it. You get a test back and you're like, oh man, I just accidentally, you know, miscalculated this, this simple thing. But can you imagine Jim Lovell on the spacecraft be like, oh, whoops, uh, guys, hey, I got some bad news. <laughs> Can you imagine having to tell the rest of your crew that they're like, well, all right, we're on our own. What, what was that code? It, what was it? Zero, zero, two, zero, 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 oh, I put zero, zero, oh. We're on our own. So it takes the team a frantic eight hours to figure out what to do, right? Essentially, they realize that they can upload new navigational data so that it actually, the system knows where they are. Amazing. <laughs> kind of helpful. Thank God. And then the bosses finally let Margaret change that bit of code. Yeah, because she, uh, I don't know, pointed it out way before even they went into space with this problem. <laughs> Come on, Neza. <laughs> I think that actually really speaks to what was really driving Margaret, which is she said over and over again when she spoke, you know, astronauts' lives were at risk here. You know, her job, she really thought of her job as safety to make sure that... Um, you know, the, the computer system was able to able to able to respond um, and to keep these astronauts safe. That's always her core motivation. Keep the people that are up there doing the mission safe. And I think that's why she just put so much into this. Of course you would. I mean, can you imagine being back home at MIT and getting that news that the astronauts are on their own up there and having to be like, oh, my God, I told you. And she's always keeping this as at the forefront of her mind. So let's fast forward seven months to the moment that we are all here for, right? July the 20th, 1969, the day of the intended first ever lunar landing. So Apollo 11's lunar lander, the Eagle, is approaching the moon's surface. You've got Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin. They can look down and they can see the sea of tranquility below them. With three minutes to go... Sea of tranquility is what that place is actually called, right? Like it's named that on the map of yes, the moon. It yeah, is, it's yeah, not yeah. just Greg's poetic way yeah. of saying... <laughs> it's a place. And with three minutes to go before the moment they're going to actually touch down on the moon's surface, an alarm starts going off. It's called the 1202, the 1202 program alarm. It doesn't sound good. I don't like the way that sounds. Rod's going to walk us through this. That had resulted during the simulation in an abort, which is a very dangerous maneuver to take. It's basically separating the top half of the lunar module from the bottom half and firing the ascent engine and going back up to orbit in an emergency mode. And a lot of bad things can happen because of that. But nobody wanted to do an abort and certainly nobody wanted to lose the mission. But it was a great concern. Now, nobody in Mission Control knew immediately what that number meant. 
They had a general idea of what the computer error codes were, but that one wasn't ringing any bells. Margaret knows. She knows the 1202 program alarm is a warning from the Apollo guidance computer that its core processing system had been overloaded. Whoa. What they'll actually realise later on is that the astronauts had inadvertently left the rendezvous radar switch on. Oh, jeez. The 1202 means the guidance computer can't complete all of its tasks in real time and it has to postpone some of them. Wait, this has happened again? I mean, astronauts are really smart people. And, but I guess, you know, they've got a lot of things to but pay attention people. to. They're exactly. People, right? Exactly. Think of how many switches there are. Think of how quickly they're doing all these different things, mm-hmm. you know? How much pressure there is. They've just left a switch on. Fair. And in like today's computers and programs, we'd probably have a fail safe for that, right? Like automatically turn it off if it's been on for too long or something like that. But things can go really wrong. Well, they had a fail safe and that fail safe was Margaret. Yes. Okay. She planned ahead for this. The software was designed so that if there was a switch in the wrong position, taking up precious processing power, you know, a hardware problem, then the software would focus on the highest priority tasks. It would ignore all the stuff that doesn't matter. Wait, that's incredible. So she's been paying. I mean, obviously we've got this through line of her caring so much about the safety of the astronauts and that being her first priority and she's designing all of the software with this in mind. You've also got that through line of her always wanting to spot or think about errors and ways to solve them. So she's anticipating these problems, these possibilities that NASA's usually like, yeah, it'll be fine. (laughs) Yeah, she's putting so much time and effort into thinking of every possible permutation but she's not in mission control and the team that are there have to make a call of whether to abort or not. So a flight controller named Steve Bales, who was responsible for making the call and whether to proceed or not, called his back room. So in Mission Control, you've got the people on the consoles, and then there are a couple of back rooms in other parts of the Mission Control building where there are crews of people who are helping each of the flight controllers do their jobs. And he said, hey, what what the hell is this? I need to know. So in the back room, some of the folks there put their heads together. And because of that simulation where that error had occurred before, They had decided, okay, we need to make a list of all the possible computer errors so this doesn't happen during a real flight. So they flipped through the list and looked and looked and looked and finally found this computer error code and radioed back, it's okay, keep going. And so Steve Bales told Gene Kranz, it's okay, we can keep going. So they don't abort. Fortunately, this is an error that had popped up in a simulation ages ago that, again, Margaret and the team had already planned for. So there was a record. They just had to find it. That's not the only alarm that goes off. Oh, my God. Right, that 1202 alarm goes off three more times. And another one, a 1201 alarm. (laughs) But each time, mission control give the go-ahead, right? They give the go. Because they want to get to the moon. Yeah, but obviously they wouldn't do it if it was going to be dangerous, but they know that they're all right. They know that, ignore those alarms, Margaret's thought of them. <laughs> they probably don't even know it's Margaret, but they know that it's been thought of. And with only enough fuel for 30 seconds left of flight, Neil Armstrong utters those famous words, Houston, uh, tranquility base here, the eagle has landed. Yes, you've made it through all of the alarms. Can you imagine being those astronauts though and like rapidly hurtling towards the moon <sighs> and all of these alarms are going off and mission control is going, no, it's oh. fine, keep going, it'll be fine. I mean, you've just got to trust, you've got to yeah, trust the system, to. haven't you? Trust the team. Incredible. As Rod says, the success of Apollo 11 was down to Margaret and her team. Well, because Margaret Hamilton had written code critical specific to this, which was error prevention code, it it was able to keep going. It made a decision, the computer all by itself made a decision that said, okay, I'm going to reject these non-essential tasks and stay on my main job, which is getting this thing landed safely down the lunar surface. So because of Margaret Hamilton's code, that mission was able to successfully land in the Sea of Tranquility. And we had our first moonwalk without 
the code that she wrote for that. And there are a lot of other people working on the computer programs, but this one was her baby. Because of that, that mission was a success. And we only, I mean, when I hear about the moon landing, when I learned about the moon landing, I only ever really heard of Neil Armstrong, maybe Buzz occasionally. Margaret never gets mentioned. And she's arguably just as important because she gets them there safely. Yeah. And Zoe has a lovely phrase to describe like the role that Margaret and the team have in the mission. So it was really the software that that rescued things as far as I can see. There's this idea that the software was really the like the software has been described as the fourth astronaut, you know, in addition to the other three. And that, you know, that was that was the team that Margaret led. In a way, Margaret mm-hmm. Hamilton was the fourth astronaut. I love that we've gone from this concept of software as not even being considered engineering by the NASA team to the software being such a critical role in the moon landing. Yeah, I love that, that idea that Margaret Hamilton was, was the fourth astronaut. She was there in in (laughs) copper wire, in spirit and copper wire. And obviously when we say her, we mean the whole team as well that kind of worked. Because of what she'd done in 2016, Barack Obama awarded Margaret Hamilton the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Well deserved. The United States' highest civilian award. And when he was talking about what happened on the lunar approach, he said, quote, Our astronauts didn't have much time, but thankfully they had Margaret Hamilton. Yeah, I mean, you can't really say it much better than that. She's their safety net. She's their guiding light. As always with this podcast, we like to uh, fill you in on what's happened next with the discovery or the invention or the person or to ask a big question. Today, I think I just want to talk about Margaret Hamilton's legacy. Because she's still alive, right? Yeah. Yeah. And let Zoe start on this one. Margaret Hamilton was a real trailblazer for computer science, you know, and for women in computer science, but just computer science as well. And her legacy stretches beyond Apollo 11. Her code was so good that no software bugs ever developed during any crewed Apollo mission. What? I don't know of any software ever that I've ever heard of that can say that. I'm going to trust that. And that's, that's phenomenal. Incredible. Plus, part of that code, actually, that, that her and the team developed, then went on to be used in Skylab, which was the first space station in the 1970s, and then in the space shuttle program. So she's shaped not only the trajectory that we've taken into computer science here on Earth and software engineering for all of our electronics that we use today, but also has made the computing that made space travel and living in space on a space station possible. Yeah, she also just sounds like a brilliant human. Like, she doesn't go around bigging up what she did. It's interesting though when you speak to Margaret, she's incredibly humble about the whole thing. You know, she just she just keeps making this point that, you know, she I guess she was just extremely conscientious. She was really just, you know, astronauts' lives are at risk. It's all about safety and, you know, reducing the chance of error and, and any error in her software. Um, you know, would have killed her. And so she was, you know, absolutely meticulous to make sure that, that there were no errors. Not only what a brilliant mind, but also what a shining example of character. Have you seen that she's been immortalized as a, as a Lego figurine? <gasps> no, I need it in my yeah, life. Uh, What's it look like? I've got it at home. Oh, I'm jealous. Yeah. Uh, it's a version of um, this kind of iconic photo that was taken of her in 1969. It's it's her stood next to this massive pile of <gasps> thick books. I've seen that. Yeah, and all those books contain that source code that her team and her developed for the Apollo missions. It's like as tall as she is, right? Yeah, and, like, and they've recreated it in Lego form. Oh, it's yes. so wonderful, including the hat stand in the corner at the back. Yes. <laughs> 
Finally then, as Barack Obama also said, quote, she symbolises that generation of unsung women who helped send humankind into space. You know, not only were there lots of women involved in stitching the code, as I've mentioned, but most of the people who did the calculations by hand, the human computers, most of them were women. Um, if you haven't watched the film Hidden Figures, I was about, just about I can to say, strongly recommend that. Yeah, so not only do we have Margaret, but we have this whole huge team of women mathematicians of of person computers computers who are people like Human Catherine computers yeah. yeah like Catherine Johnson doing all of this crazy math by hand to make sure that astronauts can travel in space safely so at the start of the podcast i called hamilton a software pioneer right and she actually said herself quote there was no choice but to be pioneers Wow. But she was a pioneer in so many ways, right? She was a pioneer in new technology and new vocabulary. She was an integral part of the team who enabled the first lunar pioneers to set foot on the moon. And she was a pioneer for women in software and the workplace, of course. You know, it has been a real pleasure to share her story. And I just want to end by wishing her all the best. We love you, Margaret. Not to be weird, but you're amazing. <laughs> That's been so cool to hear about Greg. Thank you for telling me her story. I feel like I had heard her name maybe mentioned once or twice, but I never knew any of the actual backstory and how important she was. We have a lot to thank her for, that is for sure. If you're feeling as inspired by Margaret and her work as I am, then please check out other episodes of this show where you can learn all kinds of other amazing, surprisingly brilliant things about other surprisingly brilliant people. Gosh, and with that, we come to the end of season one. I cannot believe that. It has been a totally wild ride. Greg, 14 surprisingly brilliant Ooh. stories from science history, from penicillin to the Big Bang. From dinosaur discovery to x-rays. And I don't know about you, but I very much hope to return for a season two. So if you, dear listener, would like more lesser known stories of well-known science and tech, then there are two things you can do that would really help us out. And the first is to rate and review this podcast yeah just go to itunes or spotify or wherever you listen uh, and please choose how many stars to give us i hear five is a nice number yeah five five is good then you could write us a review um just a line or two we'd hugely appreciate it and the second thing you can do is to share it with your friends and family tell them how awesome it is and share your favorite episode yeah thanks in advance for that i've really enjoyed researching and writing my episodes i know really same so i had much fun. so much fun and recording with you too greg i had a blast yeah before this madness i mean i'm currently under a duvet in my spare room halfway across the world from each other now <laughs> all right well fingers crossed we'll speak to all you lovely listeners again soon uh, thanks for the support so far please do go rate and review um should we roll the credits marin yeah let's go one last time Surprisingly Brilliant is a podcast from Seeker. Today's episode was researched, written and produced by me, Greg Foote. If you want to get in touch on Twitter and Instagram, I'm at Greg Foote. Uh, you can find me on YouTube as well. It was listened to and wowed at quite a lot <laughs> by me, Marin Hunsberger. If you want to get in touch with me on the internet, I'm at Marin B on Instagram, at Marin Hunsberger on Twitter and YouTube. And I'm on Seeker's YouTube channel as well. Our expert producer was Emily Feld. Our editor was Jeremy Schmidt. Our studio engineer was Ariala Markowitz. Our supervisor producer was David Zwick. And our amazing executive producers are Brian Pendergast, Brett Kushner and Mangish Hadakudur. Finally, another big, big thanks to our two guest experts for this story. Rod Pyle, space historian, journalist and author, and also Zoe Corbin, a freelance journalist who writes about science, tech, research, higher education, ideas. They were great. Links to those two and all my sources are in these show notes. 